This episode brought to you by The Board Source in Carlsbad, theboardsource.com. Theboardsource.com. Check it out. I dare you. I've known about SurfAid International for 15 years. Back in 2004, I was part of the editorial team at Surfer Magazine that took pro surfers Dave Rostovich, Strider, Wazalewski, Keith Malloy, and Ben Bourgeois on an ambassadorial trip to surf. Yes, absolutely. But as important to visit a few of these remote villages in the Mentawai region with SurfAid founder and head cheerleader, Dr. Dave Jenkins. Doug Lees is the new CEO of SurfAid International. New as in he started in early of 2019 this year. For those of you who don't know, SurfAid International is a nonprofit humanitarian organization whose aim is to improve the health, well-being, and self-reliance of people living in isolated regions connected to us through surfing. Surfers are generally self-centered and selfish. But there is some altruism amongst us. And certainly, Doug Lees has some of that altruism sprinkled about him. The Boardroom Podcast with Doug Lees. Let us begin. Uh, welcome, Doug Lees, the new CEO of SurfAid International, a nonprofit of which, full transparency, I'm on the board of directors here for SurfAid USA. And Doug, the CEO of SurfAid International, including SurfAid Australia, SurfAid New Zealand, and SurfAid USA. I think I got all that correct. Welcome, Doug. Great. Thanks to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome. And it, it does sound like a mouthful, all of those things, but it's, uh, it's really one, one group with uh, multifaceted placements. Yeah. So before we get into SurfAid, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, how you got your start in the surf industry. So first and foremost, I know from your accent that you're from Australia, but could you tell the listeners a little bit about where you grew up and how you sort of became a surfer as a young Grom? Okay. Um, I grew up in Manly Beach in uh, Sydney, Australia, and I've, um, my father was a surfer. Although he was more into the surf club than the free-spirited surfboard riding. And this was in the, um, so I was born in 61. And um, so I started surfing in the 70s. I got my first board uh, around 13. It was a uh, seven-foot native. I still remember it with a diamond tail, which was at that time was a short board. And um, we would go down the beach all, each day and, and surf. But it was a big part of my family's life. And, and from there, I... Um, about 14 or 15, I knew that was, um, that was my boogie. That was where I needed to be and, um, and went from there. And then um, a real pivotal moment was when I was doing my um, high school certificate, the uh, Coke con- contest was on at my local beach. And in the water, it was a school day, and I did sneak off from school. And I watched Larry Blair and Wayne Lynch in the barrel at the same time, 1978 Coke Classic. And it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And, and that was it. That, that, there was nothing else for me. And it just, 
didn't do well for my school marks, but but for me, it gave me a clear clear vision of where I wanted to be. Okay, and before that, were was Larry Blair one of your heroes? Who were your local heroes? I mean, at Manly, um, who were some of the guys that you looked up to as a grown? Well, there was there was a couple of local surfers who who were who were good who didn't go on to do great things, but for me, seeing your local surfer was. Um, was was a big thing and there was a girl called tony sawyer and lady when i was growing up um there were a couple of young guys who did do well and did you and say a, a girl named tony sawyer tony sawyer yeah so is she, was she is that the tony that was involved with bugs i don't know that oh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, i better shut up okay yeah, go ahead yeah, tony yeah. sawyer who else? and then um simon anderson would come down and terry fitzgerald they, they were local northern beaches guys so they would drift down to our area um midget was always surfing around there as well and then later i grew up with um Martin Lynch and Pam Burridge, who were a couple okay. of years below mm. me, and and we'd hang out with them around the beach. Cool. And 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 they were they were they were great to surf with. But um, women were, it was a tough place for women, a very tough place for women in the in the, in the seventies and surfing. And I could never figure it out as a fifteen, sixteen year old boy and these gorgeous girls in the water. Who didn't want women in the water? And there was these grumpy twenty, thirty year olds who were giving them a hard time. And <laughs> and, and I don't know if that was an Australian thing. I hope not, but it was it was a bad era for women surfing. And Tony Sawyer did did she? Do you think she's received the uh, the accolades or the sort of the due that that is that belongs to her? Did she get some recognition as a probably as a champion not. from probably the not. Manly Beaches? Well, well, within I've the, heard the name, which is why yeah, within the surfing community, she did make a couple of um, big contests and she did okay. But I I know that she would have greatly influenced someone like Pam Burridge. Right, right, cool. And so she was... And this Coke contest, Larry Blair and... Um, was Larry Blair from Sydney? No, uh, Larry Blair was from the Central Coast. Oh, okay. Oh, no, but I think he was surfing in Maroubra at the time. Maybe he's living there now. Um, but for him, he was unknown. He wasn't Oh, he was guy. unknown. So yeah, he, got... he, he just come in. He pretty much came from nowhere to win the contest. And there were a couple of heats that were quite controversial. Yeah, um, like drop-ins in the tube and stuff like that. Yeah, and also the scoring criteria. Yeah, there was, there was a, it, it wasn't as clear as what it was now. And um, but I was only a kid, so I just heard all the rumblings. I know Simon got beaten in the semi-finals, and that was that was a that was a um, a point of debate. But Wayne Lynch was the cool dude, absolutely, and he he was um, pretty. Yeah, he he was um, he was a little scary to talk to. Yeah. And Larry Blair was the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, golden boy. Yeah, from like Avoca or Terrigal or something. That's right, yeah. yeah. Interesting, all right. So, cool. And then you mentioned, you know, you're in high school and you, you, it's obvious, okay, I'm going to be involved in this thing known as surfing for the rest of my life. I mean, all of us that are listening to this right now have, have all had that revelation where it's like, this is it, man. There is nothing greater than riding waves and being around the ocean and all of this cool stuff. So I do know, though, that you went on to uni and you've got two or three degrees. Um, it says here that you've you got a Bachelor of Education in Fine Art from the University of New South Wales. You've got a graduate diploma after that in sports management. Yes. And then a Master's of Business Administration. So how far along after high school did you say, hey, I need to you know, move forward in my education? Yeah, it was pretty. Well, I started working in the summer as a lifeguard on the beach, but the jobs were only a summer period. It wasn't. We weren't at the stage where it was all year, and so 
I um, was really interested in surf photography and magazines, so I went to art school and I did four years there at art school. And at the time, I was thinking about being an artist, but um, at this, but they offered me a free tuition if I did a year as a teacher. So and and we got paid a scholarship, so I I volunteered for that. So it meant that they paid for my tuition, gave me some money, but the bummer was I had to teach. In my eyes, I had to teach one year of um, high school, and I was only 22. and And they sent me out to the western suburbs, and it killed me, and 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 away from the water, and away from the ocean. And I swore I'd never do that again. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're you're a young 22 year old. You're in college, and you're paying your dues, and you got to go inland more or less to 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 That's be a right. teacher. And and um, but you're a photographer. Did this lead you? I guess I'm wondering how you got sort of nestled into the beginnings of, of your career in the surf industry? Like, where did that start, besides yeah. the surf lifesaving? Yeah, yeah, well, it was all to do with, um, it, was, it was all, everything, to do, everything in my life was to do with surfing more. So in any way I could earn some money and be able to surf more, whether it was a lifeguard or take surfing photographs or whatnot. And then, um, then I traveled. I did a couple of years traveling, and, and later I came back, and I, I, I surfed around the place. Wait, wait a minute. So what does that mean you, did, you, you traveled? So yeah. after your stint as a one-year teacher in high school, you're like, okay, I'm 24, I'm 23, whatever. Yep. I'm going to Bali for a couple of years. Or, or give, us, give me some feedback there. Well, we did Bali early 80s, and it was incredible. In fact, um, late 70s, early 80s, and believe it or not, in – 82, we thought Bali was done. We had no idea. When Kuta and Legian became one town, we thought it was all over. <laughs> and so we, we, we went trekking to Sri Lanka thinking that was, um, Bali was too crowded and, and, and we had no idea of the tsunami of commercialism going there. And then in Sri Lanka, uh, a war broke out. And so we had to be evacuated from the country. They were bombing the airport. It was, it was pretty Tam- crazy. Tamil Tigers? That's right, yes. Yeah. And, and so I never made it to Aragon Bay, but I'm, I'm probably digressing this story here. No, you're not. This is fascinating <laughs> to me. That How many people are airlifted from a region while surfing? You know, I think this is good. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty freaky. We, we were working on going across to um, Aragon Bay. And we surfed uh, Hikadua down the south end, and we never made Aragon Bay because that was a Muslim area where the rest was Buddhist. And and it took me forty years to go back there, and I only recently got back there. But um, yeah, we were put in the Australian embassy and then evacuated out of the country. It was um, it, it was a crazy time, and um, and and surf travel and surf there was no surf travel. Yeah. So you had to make it up, and you went. There were there were no way that you would. We, well, I never thought that. It would become an industry and a huge industry, which I use today, and it's, and it's a great service. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, as you, you can explain to our listeners, I mean, Australian surf culture is 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 weaved with legendary guys that were surf travelers. Um, and so, I mean, that was a part – I mean, I imagine, look, as a young guy, you're just soaking up Tracks magazine. You're soaking up um, all of the surf media that's out there for you. And a lot of that is, like – tracking around and going surfing and stuff so i mean that's right we see these photos of um of mystical waves and i think back now you know late 70s i would look for someone to surf with me at Kuta reef there was no one there we didn't even have to go to Ulu. it was just straight out the front it was right a magical place a magical time and beautiful people and i suppose all of these things innately brought me back to this career in surf aid that we'll talk about later but i look back and and, and, and you think at the time they're all random thoughts or ideas, but they all come back to nest. It's funny how our lives 
sometimes circumnavigate. Yeah, for sure. And, and so you came back to Australia and you're like, okay, I need to get a foothold and, and something going on here. And was it photography in, in the surf industry or? Yeah, I was, I, was, I was doing that and I was working as a lifeguard and then I was keen to, but, but traveling was a big part of my life. So then at the, when the season ended, we, we went to um, England to work and then we surfed Europe. So we got a, a, a job. When, when you finish working as Australian lifeguard, you're, you're offered um, jobs all around the place and I took a job in Cornwall in England and I worked there for three months. As a, as a lifeguard? That's right, yes. Yeah. Because your summer ends and you fly to England, it's their summer's beginning. That's right. And I'd heard the, about the waves in France and Spain and Portugal, and I was pretty keen to get down there. But there wasn't much information. No one knew. What the, and, and the people who did know didn't tell you. Right. <laughs> All these places, news just seeped out. And you'd, you'd go, oh, I've heard there's waves there. Oh, no, there isn't. And, 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 or they might not be very good, and they try and throw you on a... On, on, the, on the wrong steer or the other people were welcoming too but I surfed all through there and um, and it was during that time that um, the surf industry was just starting to flourish a little bit and um, then and I just Quicksilver and Billabong are starting to get international that's right strongholds and they're not just in Australia and the mainland USA and there's they're getting into Europe and it's really really taking off like 85 86 something like that that's right yes yeah. and so then i came back and and saw an opportunity where i didn't have to work on the beach anymore but still could be part of the surf industry so i opened up a, a surf shop in manly mm-hmm. and i opened up with a mate of mine who i was working as a lifeguard called guy leach and there was this uh, there was this film called cool and get a gold they were they were they were filming on the gold coast and this film had a mythical race end where you won a lot of money so he, as a lifeguard, entered this race, and um, and they they used the race, the film, the end section of the film, and he won the race, and he won twenty thousand dollars, and that was a lot of money. What kind of race is this exactly? It's like an Ironman race. Okay, they, so he's doing three different things. Yeah, that's bike, right. Run, swim, forty-two kilometers of swimming, running, like like a triathlon before triathlon. And because he's a lifeguard, he's fit. He's got it going on, and that's he's, right. He's a stud, basically. That's right. Yeah. And so then he won the race, and I'd just come back from Europe, and we and I was talking to him about opening a surf shop, and he had twenty thousand dollars, and that was a lot. I'd had no money at all, and I convinced him to invest the money on my pipe dream of opening a surf shop. So we opened a surf shop in Manly. Good man, You're <laughs> this is a good thing. So, so what's the name of the shop? At the time, it was called Pacific Sunshine, but later we changed it to Australian Surf HQ. Okay. And we ran that for about a year or so, and it did really good because uh, 88, 89, you had that run on. But then Guy didn't want to work in the store anymore because he came a household name, became really famous. Because they, then they had the second race, which they never meant to have races, and he won another 20 grand. And at the same time, he was getting opportunities to turn up to nightclubs and getting paid $1,000, $2,000 appearance money, and he was on TV and all that stuff. And he didn't want to work in the surf shop anymore. Right. And and so then um, there was a guy called Mark Imes who was um, at the time uh, a professional surfer, but it was, it was hard for him to break through. And then he got offered a job at Rip Curl knowing that he couldn't make enough money from pro surfing. And he purchased Guy Leach's shares and he became my partner in the stores. Okay. So you and Mark are now at Australian HQ. It's like That's 89. Right. That's right. 89, 90. There. Tom Carroll's like getting paid a million dollars by Quicksilver. It's on the cover of 
Australian newspapers. Yeah, that's right. I lived there actually then. That's why I know. I remember that's seeing right. his Tom Carroll, and it, you know, it was like the Sun or something, and it had a big one million dollar man or something like that. That's exactly right. And at that time, it was really funny. His his wife or girlfriend at the time was Lisa Merriman, who was working in our store. And so the added bonus was every second day, Tom Carroll would drive to our store to pick up his to pick up Lisa, and that, and that was a, that was a great thing. And then um, and then the same year that so Tom- Australian HQ is like the biggest surf shop in Australia, really. When you think about the population base, where you're located, I know. Look, there's other shops up and down the coast, yeah. but when you think about it, that's like having the, a huge successful shop at Malibu or something, and having Kelly Slater show up every day to pick up his girlfriend. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good, and then of course we had other people who were always there because it became a little focal point of hanging out. And was it right on the beach? Ex- across the road from the beach. Okay. And so you know, think hunting and surf and sport or that type of thing. So right. it was a big shop. It wasn't the biggest in Australia, but it was a very popular. And and because in that era, all the people I'd grown up became quite famous surfers, like Lane Beach. I mean, Pam Burridge had just won a world title, and she'd come in all the time. And I hired a young. 14 year old time Lane Beachley and so she worked for me for two years and um and Barton was there and Tom so it was a little hot bread of of activity right when that era of surfing in Manly became really popular so it was so we were able to um commercialize that Damien Hardman was he from that era he was up he was up in uh Narrabeen and and he hated going to Manly and so How he, far is it from Narrabeen to Manly? I mean, these are all the same Sydney beaches, right? That's right. It's about eight or ten miles away. Okay. But the funny thing now is, is Damien now owns a surf shop, a rip curl surf shop in Manly, and he and he used to hate going to Manly. It cracks me up all the time. Yeah. Now he's there, huh? That's right. So you've got this hotbed, and you've got a great shop going, and um, things are going good. You're the surf industry's blossoming and blooming, and yes. everything's going well. What What was next for you? Well, then we started opening more stores, and we got to about 12 stores. Australian H- Surf HQs. That's right, yeah. So we went. And so you're competing with, like, Nielsen Brothers or something. That's right. We had a couple of stores on the Gold Coast competing against Brothers Nielsen and in, and in Sydney as well. But, Did um, they come down? Did Brothers Nielsen have Sydney stores? No, they didn't. I think we were the first to go interstate. What was that like? Was there just – was it – was it all good vibes, or was it like, "Hey, man, you're coming into my scene up here"? You know, was there some of that, or it, it, there was plenty of um, territorial turf warfare, the same as in the surf. You know, yeah. at Manly, there's a famous pipe, and and one side's north, in, so it's a long beach, and in the middle of the beaches, there's two pipes, and all the Queensland board riders guys never surf north of the pipe, and the and the North Stain guys would never surf south, and if they ever crossed the pipe, no matter how good the surf is, it was a big deal. Yeah, and and I remember talking to people at Newport here. I think it's the same where certain streets are, are where people surf, and they yeah. don't. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a pretty. Funny but I think thing. back then it might have been a little more hardened. That's right. It was very competitive. <laughs> it was vocal. Very competitive. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were no parents around. There were no. There were no. There were no. No rules. lawyers. No surfing lawyers. There were no rules, and yeah. and and we sit here, out the front of Wind and Sea, which is a couple hundred meters away, and. And from what I've heard, that was a little tough area at the same time, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe the toughest. But things have gotten soft. Or better or progressed. It all depends on your viewpoint. Both good and bad. Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. Okay. So you've opened a bunch of shops. You're successful. You're making money. You're doing your deal. At some point, um, 
I want to say, because I did a little reading on your history, Doug. At some point, and I want to say it's like 96 or 97, uh, Bruce Channon and Hugh, um, Mc, how do you say his last name? McLeod. McLeod. Hugh McLeod and Bruce Channon are done with one of the most iconic, one of the most, really a, an integral part of surfing culture in Australia, which is Surfing World Magazine. And I guess they're like, they're ready to retire. Those guys have been at it for a while. That's right. They'd made movies. They'd done it all. They were involved in surf media. And it ends up that they're going to put surf, Surfing World up for sale. That's right. And, and tell me what happens then. Um, well, at the time, I was living with a guy called Reggae Ellis, who, was the, who had just finished up as the editor of Trax Magazine. And we were discussing, he wasn't happy with the, um, the direction that Trax was taking. How so? What was, not, what was he not happy with? The commercialization of it. He was a pure editorial guy. And remember, in the late 90s, um, or mid to late 90s, the surfing um, industry started to have more power, and they tried to exert their power and, and do editorial trips. Yeah. Nowhere near the extent they would do later. In yeah. fact, it was very early days, and... And, and uh, all the editors thought that this was wrong and they should only photograph what surfers they would want to surf. Right. And What was the publisher editorial divide like? I know when I worked at a surf magazine, there was a very stiff like um, line in the sand between the publisher and the editorial staff. Was it like that, do you think, at Tracks with Reggae, where the publisher's like, hell yeah, we're going to do these trips with these brands. They're, they're paying our way. Why wouldn't we? It was total war, actually. They hated each other. Yeah, they would. They would. Um, the editors would lock the door and not let the ad guy in, and 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 there were huge fights with um, huge fights with um, what went on the cover and what went went in the magazine, and so. Um, but at the same time, these magazines were starting to make significant amounts of money, and Surfing World had ignored it, and and to their financial peril, though they they. I think in the I think they didn't take use a photo of Kelly Slater for five years during the late nineties when he was the most iconic and best surfer in the world and and they they started. Do you think that Bruce and Hugh did that out of hey we're gonna you know like it wasn't like they were purposely going no we're not using a photo of Kelly was yes. it or were they just going look that's just not the good photo the good photos of this guy over here who's a no name so we're gonna use that one. Yeah, it was it was a mix of both. One, they they had a rule that the best shot won, but two, they they pretty much went out of their way to put people in the mag who didn't have a sticker on their board. Yeah. Total counterculture as as um as a reaction to the commercialization process, and then tracks and surfing life manipulated that situation and did the other way where they said we'll we'll take all the photos and one, and, and they became much more successful. And they they reaped the rewards of the industry, which was. That's super right. stoked to buy more ad space and do yeah. these editorial trips. And That's right. Yeah. And so Reggae wanted to go the surfing world way, but not as extreme. He wanted to work with them, but that hold a, mu- a, a purity of editorial. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably hanging on to the 80s and, and early 90s when, when the, a magazine was God. And, and were the guys like you and Reggae and, and whoever you were working with um, – were you looking at USA magazines and going, God, they've really sold out, man. Let's let's not go that route. Was that part of it too? Was was there even an eye looking up here at that stuff or no? Uh, yes and no. We we um, 
I was a surfer, and great photos are great photos. I, I was I was beyond all of it. I di- I didn't realize it until I started working there later. I just loved. I just consumed everything. Yeah, I thought it was all good. It didn't matter where the magazine came from. Yeah. In fact, the you know surfing and surfer, but I couldn't figure out why they would put an ad in the middle of a story and things like that. There were little funny things that we would always run clean stories. Yeah, but we could definitely see the direction, and, and I know reggae's pet hate was wetsuit guides and surfboard guides, which the American mags had started doing it and it killed him. He said, we'll never do that. Never, ever. <laughs> that is so funny. And to this day, Surfing World still never has. Oh, that's interesting. So so you and Reggae get together and you buy Surfing World. From Bruce and you. And yeah. then we um, got a writer called Tim Baker on board and then a an, uh, an eccentric photographer filmmaking pair of um, Andrew Kidman and John Frank. And, Ad- and they had just finished making a film called Litmus. Yes. And we went, well, Litmus is where we want to be. Yeah. And so we decided to make a magazine along the Litmus lines of yeah. alternative free surfing. Right. But still put a commercial and pro surfing. It was still a war between the free surfers and the professional surfers. There were yeah. still big arguments on that. Yeah. And I read that, that you and Kidman actually didn't see eye to eye necessarily <laughs> regarding yeah. some of this. And is that because you were on the publishing side of the equation or how does... Oh well, well, there was a commercial thing that, but also, I mean, you're the publisher, right? Like you're the guy that's bringing in the dollars. That's Is that right. Correct. That's right. I was, and also I was an owner. And um, Andrew was, um, he's he's a pretty stubborn character, you know. And yeah. there was no grey. And in the advertising world, it's grey. There's a little bit of this and that, but for him, it was black and white. Yeah. There was right and wrong, and nothing in between. Right. And he was. Um, he was, he was hard. He was a hard ass. And and we give me would, an example of maybe a situation that arose, if you don't mind. Well, he he would say um, if I if we'd argue on a cover, he would go, "This is the cover," and it was a backlit, moody shot that you couldn't see the surfer and you couldn't figure out what was going on. And he'd go, "This is the shot," because it represents all these things that he wanted. I go, "No, it's just a bad, blurry shot." You know, I want I want in your face, great surfing, and and we would argue it, and then. He would just go, that's it. I'm, I'm pulling all my stories from this issue and I'm not doing anything else. And, and we, we were Armstrong because half the issue was his work. And, 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 and it was, yeah, there, there were, um, and Reg, would, Reg as the editor would even refuse to come in. It was, um, it was, it was really, <laughs> really, it reminded me of, it was like, we were like a band, a rock and roll band, arguing. Yeah. Arguing viciously to the, Two in the middle of the night on what cover would go on and what shot and and in there I don't think anyone cared as much as us. Our yeah. readers didn't much care and l- like they had great faith in us, but but the the um, I think I just picked a whole bunch of people who were just so annoyed with all other surf mags and they came and blamed me for it and of course I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my well. Was there any like data analytics or any market research that suggested that like a front lit beautiful guy inside standing inside a golden blue tube is going to sell way more magazines on the shelf than? Because in Australia, I don't know if the listeners know this, but it's it's all sales off of the newsstand. There's no subscription base, right? That's right. That's right. We would make more money. Where in America, of what I've led to believe, except for Surface Journal, is a lot of the mags. The advertising was more important than the editorial. You made more money from the ads. Oh, for sure. Than, than, but for us, in Australia, it was more sales. Mm. And so I guess it was us trying to figure out 
how many people wanted to follow pro surfing and how many people wanted a counterculture lifestyle. And the problem with following the counterculture lifestyle, which, which I quite liked and I was there as well, just not as extreme as Andrew, was they were so counterculture they weren't buying mags either. They were just right. Off, they just were off the grid, you know. Yeah. And um, they wanted to know where Tom Curran had disappeared for for five <laughs> years, or or, or what, what you know those type of characters, or, right. or Wayne Lynch and, and and people who dropped off, or and and we we did a lot of stuff with Rasta, and they're really interesting characters for sure. But but it was a struggle because I had just had a baby, mm-hmm. and I was trying to get by, and and of course I'd go in after two hours sleep, and Kidman would be there angry as and um <laughs> and wanting to <laughs> wanting to do this and that and then and then john frank at the same time but but what happened was we had a signature style because john frank would shoot all these fantastic backlit shots from hawaii and he became really famous and and on these this style of photographs because everyone was doing the front lit yeah super post yeah. poster image and and frankie was doing this backlit stuff and all it was was john frank didn't wake up early <laughs> <laughs> he, he just woke up late, and and then um, and and there was you know and and of course with all these people there were really interesting stories you know um, there was there was one there was one story where um, George Greenough had written us a story, and instead of typing it he'd he'd uh, he'd handwritten the whole thing, and. Um, we were going to retype it out, and I said to George, I said, mate, we've got this great... It was on sharks, and, and Kidman had lined it up and, and all this stuff, and I said oh, to him, I'll, I'll rewrite it and I'll tune it up and I'll because I'll, there's a little bit of grammatical, grammatical error and a few things that needed a little and a little repetition. And he said, um, he said, not one fucking word, man. Don't lose one fucking word or that story is out. And then we... we, we, we um, we talked about it and we went, well, it's George Greenow. If he wants 10,000 words, we'll just write it as it is. And we, and we published it and people loved it, but, but we weren't allowed to touch it at all, you know. Yeah. And it was, you were dealing with those type of prickly characters. Yeah. And sometimes they were winners and sometimes they weren't. Like Kidman had this one theory called the painters where he put the whole issue sideways. He didn't even want to put it running forward. All of the images went horizontal instead of vertical. So you'd have to look at it like a calendar. And just I go why, and he goes because because that's what we're going to do. This issue we can't keep doing the same thing. We'll do the whole issue sideways, and we did half the issue sideways, and and we won half, and it was just atrocious. It was just, in my mind, right? In my mind, when you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. 
LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And how many of these um, run-ins or editorial spats did, did you and Kidman have? And how many did you come out on top of? And how many, what was the... Uh, Oh, this cool. win so, yeah, ratio. You know, I was as wrong as many times as Andrew. Like, like he he he's a really clever guy. Oh, for sure, no, and no. he does incredible stuff. He and does. There's no doubt. He's a super creative. I get it. That's right. And yeah. and and with him, um, you had to trust these artistic guys. You can't. Yeah. You can't. You you know they they are unique, and the beauty of them is they don't say no. Exactly. Like imagine a world without people like him. Yeah. So. You know, you know, it was really good for us to publish that because no mag in the world would have done it. No mag would have given them the the length to run that stuff. Yeah. But sometimes it was commercially tough because yeah. I'm trying to, like, he's living by himself, so his his costs were lower. But for me, I had a new baby, and I need. I, do you I have Do you have like you know marketing guys from Quicksilver calling you and going, "Hey, we'd love to support, but." You're not supporting us, so let me know when you're going to support us with some photos of whoever. And we'll was it that kind of pressure that you were feeling? Oh, oh, without a doubt, some of the big guys were pulling, pulling, um, pulling their ads. And and, and but but I still liked. I, I stood up for our editorial team outside. It yeah. was inside. Right. Like, but but there was a time when um, Billabong were floating, and they were hypersensitive on anything. And and at one time, I did get called into the Billabong office and. Got a severe dressing down when from Gordon or one of his uh, yeah Dougal and Gordon and yeah. um and 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 the team because of a Tim Baker story saying that Billabong had sold out and become a public company and and we had published it and and all that stuff so. gnarly yeah it was it was <laughs> that sounds pretty happy. but you know what I thought it was in that case I would I would have run that again because I thought that was a really good editorial piece and we were the only mag that would publish a story like that. And, and 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 it was important for us to tell that story. It's fascinating this concept of are we surf journalists? Are we really journalists? Which I know is what you and Andrew and Tim were shooting for. Yes. And then this other side of it was, hey, you guys, wake up! Really, what we are is a marketing vehicle for the surf industry, and it's right in this time frame that you're speaking of, yes. where this really came to a head. Where it's like, who owns who? Like, are we running the show, or is the industry running the show that's right exactly right like there was a day when um someone like a, a gordon merchant or um or the, or the quicksilver guys wouldn't even launch a line unless they spoke to the mags about it first and then later on it became immense pressure to publish they, they would send people and spend a lot of money shooting um surfers on a trip and then they would pressure us to put the the photos in it and often the photos were incredible yeah but but it was a fine line and it was a it, it was starting to get monotonous too. Like another trip with Gary Green and Indo, or what? That was probably... perfect waves in in the mints. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like it, it was, right. There was not much. Day one, we we surfed all day. Day two, we surfed all day, and so it was. You know, we we, we definitely wanted a voice for the common surfer as well, and and thank Evans, people like Raster and that turned up to make it easier for us to do that because he was a charismatic guy, sponsored by um, 
um, Billabong at the time. Billabong right? and, and Kieran Pero, I took, who's now the commissioner of the, the World Surf League. Guys like that were willing and able to to go different places. You know, don't let's let's trek through the other side of Java or go up through Sumatra and and look for different places like that. Yeah. But the second thing as well was the immersion of video. Video started and video clips became important, and so it did change the dynamics of everything. It did, right? Because in, in my eyes, what the video clip did was it validated the free surfer that you guys were trying to validate forever. All of a sudden, yep. you know, Craig Anderson, just some cool hippie or even Dave or whoever, yep. a bunch of guys were putting out these incredible clips. Yep. And and now the Billabongs, the Quicksilvers are all going, oh, my God, we got to get on this bandwagon over here, this free surf thing. It's starting to make sense, you know. And so now it's it, it's a complete yes. um, homogenization of of all of it. I know, I know. And th- these early 2000s were interesting days because um, at the time pro surfers didn't train as much and so they would, there was still, you know, the, the coaching and all that was different. But we still had a hard time access, accessing and then where, where a Craig and um, uh, a Dave were keen to shoot, shoot for us because that was their job, yeah. to go out and get clips. Yeah, they were knocking on your door instead of you t- trying to hunt down whoever. That's right. So it was so it enabled us to suddenly go from the paupers to the mid two thousands. We started to shine, and all of a sudden, what we were doing that no one liked suddenly people started liking, it, and then the mag became quite popular in the in the um, mid two thousands. But at the same time, right now we have the internet, and this was a scary time for. Um, American, USA, North American magazines as we had a print mentality. We had blinders on. We were like, people will always buy this magazine. They have for 40 years. Why won't they? And I'm talking of Surfer Magazine where That's I right. worked. And um, they didn't, even though ad dollars were starting to be siphoned off into the internet, um, the publishers and just the culture of print still dominated. Was that something that, that you felt at Surfing World magazine? Well, we got a bit out of jail in Australia because we started getting clips putting DVDs on the cover of mags. And because um, news sales were more important in Australia than advertising, then we could double our circulation. We could sell another 10,000 extra copies because we had a DVD on the top. Mm. And it was a world-class movie that, that um, someone had shot. And they were looking to distribute it because... The, the internet still didn't have the bandwidth. Yeah. So a lot of people, like, it was still the, you know, it was hard to watch a clip for a minute because you didn't have the power of the internet at the time. So DVDs were highly sought after. So we would compete with other companies to get a great DVD on the cover. And to the detriment of the mag sometimes where they would buy the mag, throw away the mag and watch the DVD. <laughs> and and so then it didn't matter. And also the, the a cover of a magazine, a cover shot, which was highly regarded by surfers, became of less value because it had a DVD on the cover. Yeah. But once again, then they were getting more influence. We were getting by the companies to try and control our editorial. And what's the situation with print magazines now in Australia? Are they still flourishing? Are they still sought after by the surf market, by guys like me that, that or even guys like our kids? You know, like, does your kid, does your, do your kids look at surf magazines? They're, they're clips. They, they love clips. They'll, they'll, any young surfer will consume any surf, surf media. I'm, I'm convinced of it, but whether they'll buy a mag and look at it is a different thing. Yeah. Um, it has, the dynamic, dynamics has changed, and when we started 
So in 2008, I, we saw the internet coming in a big way and we didn't have enough money to build successful websites and we knew that reproducing a magazine online didn't work. So then I rang up a guy who was, had a website called Coaster Watch, which is our surf line in, in Australia, and he had hardly any surf representation. And also his cameras didn't always face the right surf spot. Was he a surfer or a tech guy? Or both. He was a tech guy, not a surfer. Yeah. And they started that as um, not as a surf site. They started it as a um, water surveillance and safety site for boat people as much as surfers. And so it, at certain locations, the camera didn't even face the right surf spot. It was more facing the harbour. So I, I, I rang him. His name was Kim Sundell. And I said, I would like to join, do a partnership with Surfing World and Coastal Watch that where we amalgamated them both. And so... In 2007, we did a deal where he purchased 50% of Surfing World and I came and worked for Coastal Watchers Surfing World and we built the two together. And therefore, it didn't affect us as much as the other mags because we now suddenly had a... Another revenue stream. A hugely successful website. And you were bringing your relationships with the surf industry to this guy and going, hey, I'm going to be able to bring revenue dollars because I I know all these guys. That's right. That's right, and it was significant growth. I think they were 150, 200 grand worth of ad revenue, and in the first year, I turned that up to a million dollars, and 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 that shot straight away. And at the same time, um, webcasts were just starting, and it was important to use Surfline or Coastal Watch to tell people the contest was on and they could click on. Yeah. And and lastly, was the digital really helped our subs- subscriptions because we were able to build our subscription base off the digital base. So, so it actually made us a really strong proposition. And Surfing World Magazine is still, still going strong. That's right. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, it, uh, it probably publishes about 10 a year. I think we were the last mag that was still going annually. Yeah. And, and it was the last year or so ago. Yeah. Um, the editorial is still strong. It's still very independent. And, Who's and running the editorial department there? A guy called Sean Doherty. Oh, Sean. He'd been around oh, for really? a while. Oh, really? Doherty's doing that. That's oh, right. Okay. So, Sean, in 2007, I suddenly had a war chest with Kim, and I just went out and got, a, got every best, best right? writer I could get. And because all the writers were more and more disillusioned with the other mags, yeah. and the other magazines didn't have a digital strategy, they sort of much, much went, it's too hard for us. We'll just keep Yeah, they had print. that blinders on print thing i was exactly talking. right and and the thing was is we all got taught in media where we we were the information source and we told the people the surfers what to think and say but the internet has an interaction between both like the you've got to interact with the reader and the reader wants to interact with you yeah and the big changes in digital is in that and Sean's Sean strikes me, and I've known Sean, and and everyone knows who Sean Doherty is, and yeah. he really has his finger on the pulse of pro surfing, yes. Which, which seems to, I mean, I guess surfing world's culture's changed a little bit, as as we mentioned, everything's kind of all good now. Everyone's in the same boat. There's not like two camps. Well, we're, we're, we're all. T- Trying to fight for survival, aren't we? <laughs> Whether you're a surf brand or a, or a surfboard shaper or a magazine. But um, with what we did early was we just did all of the editorial on contests digitally. Yeah, right. And, and, and we never did digi- mm-hmm. contest reports in the mag. Right. So it, it fitted really well with us. So we could continue to actually make Coastal Watch 
a really commercial vehicle because no one really cared and keep Surfing World a, a, a purely editorial play and not be pressured. So, so we, 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 we found a really nice place and we were lucky to. And the thing about Sean Doherty is he's, a, he's an amazing writer because he studies human behaviour. Yeah. Like he'll sit with you and me, he'll have us figured out yeah. uncanny, like it's unnerving actually. Yeah, like psychology. That's right, and he'll write, and he'll notice the smallest things of gestures and that, and and that's what makes his writing so unique and, and beautiful. Yeah, he's great. Where where Nick Carroll, who also works for us at the time, was a more technical purist, and he would talk about board design and 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 the pure function of of surfboards and and communities. He was really interested in communities, so he would write about sh- the uh, you know sharks or did we need this influence in surfing or surfing the Olympics and. Yeah. He, he would write about those bigger, broader issues. Yeah. And Sean would worry about people and personalities. A quick break in the podcast to tell you about theboardsource.com. High-end, high-quality, highly desirable used surfboards from brands and shapers like Christensen, Takayama, Tyler Rusty, Chemistry, Skip Fry, Firewire, Lost, Channel Islands, and many, many, many others. Theboardsource.com. New inventory coming in daily, and the website is updated daily. Check it out theboardsource.com. Go there right now. Now back to the podcast. Professional surfing as a segue here as we talk about Sean's influence. Right now, it's, it's, let's be frank, it's, it's running on this altruism of this, these wonderful um, couple, Natasha and Dirk Ziff. They're basically funding pro surfing. And, yes. and it's my opinion and opinion of many is that it's losing money. Yes. No one knows, but... It seems like it's a very expensive endeavor, what they're doing. And um, based on information we have from the ASP prior to them, we know it's pretty damn expensive. Mm. Um, And I'm not sure how long it can last. What are your thoughts on altruism Uh, and pro surfing and if it's going to dry up? Well, I hope it lasts because pro surfing has never looked better. Agreed. Like like visually... um, on the net, the, the coverage is incredible. Everything's so professional and what they've done to help the, um, the sport of, of surfing and, and surfers is incredible. But at the same time, it was a love-hate relationship because when they first came in and Paul Speaker was running it, we had a really hard time. And he, You're not alone. He, he pretty much <laughs> said, you guys don't know what you're doing and stay away from us and um, sit back and watch me because I'll teach you all how it's run. So much so that they would invite everyone in the media bar the surf industry to certain things and and it was a really awkward situation and then for us we went well if you don't want us there then we won't write about it and yeah and go from there but it must have been weird to have some yank coming in i mean i imagine there were some superlatives that were flying with paul speaker oh yeah yeah he's he wasn't spoken in high regard in 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 surf media i think pretty much around the world to be honest yeah and um but the last couple of years, they've been really welcoming and, and, and yeah. great to deal with. No, no, they've totally changed their whole culture. So much apologetic almost. They, will, they would call us in and invite us to places and, and, yeah. and, and talk to us. And Because what's lacking, in my opinion, is real stories. Yeah. And a surfing magazine would give you the flavor of a person rather than a cheap clip. Like, well, what's that guy really like or what's that girl like or what makes them tick? And writers like Sean Doherty would articulate that really well, or, or an Andrew Kidman, and, and, and it was missing. And I think that left the – and that reflected even on the brands and, their, and, and, the, and the products they produced. Yeah. 
because a lot of it is just a $5 t-shirt trying to sell for 30 bucks. Yeah. And if you don't buy the dream, then it's just a $5 t-shirt. Yeah. And so we need heroes and we need true surfing heroes. And we're looking for more people than just people who win contests. We yeah. want them to be good people and represent us as a, the surfing community. Yeah. Let's hypothetically consider that at some point the well dries up. Yes. And the WSL folds or leaves or it's just not what it is now because it's just not a business proposition. At some point you can only give for so long before you're like, you know what, we're out. Yeah. What does pro surfing look like then? That's a really good question. A lot of people are worried about that because there's only one person who controls the purse strings. But I'm not an expert in that area and, and I don't think my opinion's worth much because I don't know. I honestly, I don't have a really good answer to that. I just hope they do well yeah. and, and, and they, make it, they make it work because it seems like their intentions are pure yeah. and, and they, and they want to make it work and it seems like they've got better people. But I do know there's a finite period to patience. And yeah. there's a finite period to losses, and I just I just hope they make it work because it's better than what it was, and it could be really good. Yeah, I I think all of us are super stoked on what the WSL is doing and and how it's playing out. And I mean, it's yeah. the like, as you mentioned, it's as good as it's ever been, and yeah. it's never been better. I mean, it's fabulous. I mean, my wife is a fan. They, yeah. they truly have brought in non-surfers to That's watch right. this thing. Like I want it to work. I, I'm, I would like to see it work. It's good for our sport and it's good for right. us. Um, well, you diplomatically sidestepped that question. You're a smart man. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by the difference between the Australian surfing culture and the North American surfing culture. And I think some of it comes down to the social stratification of each nation state. And here in the U.S., we have a shrinking middle class, and the haves are getting bigger, and the have-nots are even getting larger. Yes. And you can see it just here in La Jolla, the cost of – anywhere up and down the coast of California, the cost of land along this coastal strip is through the roof, and you just simply can't live here unless you are well-educated and have an incredible job. Mm. And frankly, your kids are going to have a hard time living here. Um. And in Australia, the middle class seems to be really thriving. Can you give me your thoughts on that? Um, well, firstly, we, we're, a, we're a victim of the environment where the only good places to live are along the coast. Like inland, there's no great lakes or there's no um, wheat belt or there's no places where you can live. It's, it's dusty, it's dirt, and it's, it's unlivable, uninhabitable. And so... All of our, our 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 people live along the coast, and we're still a hundred years behind you guys. Like um, between um, my wife is American, and when I first met her, she was telling me that between LA and San Fran was pretty cheap, and then it all became the same price. And I think that's happening in Australia. But luckily for a lot of surfers, they all just wanted to live where good surf spots were, like Byron Bay, and they just got lucky. They they would go and buy a piece of land, and it became really valuable. And they surfers innately knew where the best places were in river mouse and, and beautiful lush areas. But we do have a strong middle class and um, we, we have strong surfing communities and we have board riding clubs and we have surf clubs and all of that builds in. But it's... What's fascinating to me 
if I can interject, is that even the 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 upper class in Australia yes. identifies as middle class. Like they don't necessarily want to raise their hand and go, Hey guys, um, check out my Ferrari. Yes, like right. there's something about your culture that everyone's kind of in it together. That's right. It's inclusive. Well, maybe it's our convict heritage. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's, we're we, all locked up together. Yeah, right? that's right. We were, we were all, it was very uncool to, if you did well, to tell people you did well. Yeah. It was a real battle. And I know the surf industry struggled with when they started making big money and, but if you walked into Rip Curl and you saw Brian Singer, he'd still be in thongs and an old T-shirt and, yeah. and shorts and he's still walking around. And, and, and it's considered that's what's done. We're here. There's, there's a need to actually um, prove that you're successful by flaunting it, yeah. if I can generalize that. It's more like because success breeds success, but we, we have to be humble champions. Yeah. And, and if we are not humble champions, then we're not popular. I think that's a fascinating thing, and I, th- and I wish it was more like that here. Um, th- it seems that underneath all of that is some American insecurity that we have this need to show you my latest greatest, and aren't I cool? And, yeah. and it's just, I don't know. But, but all of our surfing heroes were flawed, flawed people, like the Michael Petersons of the world or, or, or the Wayne Lynches, the, the guys who were the superheroes of me growing up and, and my... And my my general peers, or it was like Batman, you know, he or Superman. They all had this little kryptonite part that made them not quite perfect, and we loved them for it. You know, Michael Peterson's books sold immense copies, and yeah. and, and 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 people like that. The Australian culture was we loved a flawed hero. Yeah, we loved someone who wasn't quite a hundred percent, a little bit loopy maybe, or yeah. a little bit eccentric. That that was our that was our guy. Yeah, and I. I think Americans. I think. I think that's the. I think most people in general like the the ability to identify with a flaw because we all have them, right? So I don't think that maybe Australians are have sort of a hold on that solely. But it's an interesting thing. I've always just really been fascinated by the 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 pureness of your middle class and how the entire nation state just seems to be on the same social stratification. There just isn't these great divides. And I think it's a neat thing. Uh, okay. Let's talk a little bit about surf aid. By the way, as I mentioned, I'm on the board of directors here in surf aid USA. So full transparency. Um, and we just had a great event. We just had a great event up at the Kelly Slater, uh, surf ranch, it was the Surf Aid Cup, Kelly Slater Surf Ranch, 2019, and we raised a, quite a bit of money. Tell us a little bit about the event we just had. Who doesn't want to surf the ranch? <laughs> I know I do, again. <laughs> Every surfer wants to surf the ranch. I was devastated a year and a half ago when they had a media day from the poor speaker tough days when you weren't allowed anywhere to um, Sophie coming in and saying, let's invite all the surf media to uh, come and surf the ranch. And um, Vaughan Blakey and Nick Carroll from, and Sean Doherty all went, and I, and I was supposed to be on that list, and but I was in the Solomon Islands on another trip. And, oh, man, I was hating life. I just wanted, I just wanted to see it. I wanted to go past the gates and, and, and look inside. And then they came back, and they were so excited. They were so, so excited. And... Um, and it just made me hungry for it more. And when the opportunity came for us via Mark Price, 
thank you, Mark Price, if you're listening, <laughs> through Firewire, who um, who had an in and talked to the WSL about allowing us to run an event there. And the moment they started talking around, I said, yes, yes, we're in, we've, we've got to do it. And it, 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 it's just um, all of my expectations were met, the staff, the wave itself. I didn't, um, I didn't personally get to surf uh, only on one wave at 6 o'clock. And so I turned up at 7 a.m. and I watched people stoked out of their mind all day and it physically hurt me. But at the same <laughs> time, I was so excited on the stoke on the people. And, and then when my time, time came at 6 o'clock, I built myself up into such an anxious moment. I had one wave and if I blew the takeoff or fell off or got greedy on the barrel, uh, you, you know, it was over. And I, I spoke to Mark Price on two or three times on which board should I, because I didn't bring a board, which board should I use and what should I do? But um, wow, what a wave. Yeah. What an fun. opportunity. It is an incredible wave. And we had a group of donors that have been supporting Surfade International for a long time um, raise money for us. And and um, and they got to come out and enjoy what, what you're talking about. And it was incredible. The customer service that they that they perform there is unreal. I mean, it is a top notch. You feel like you're at a country club. You feel like you're like you're at the best, like the Melbourne Bowls Club or something. You know what That's I mean? Right. Like it's just top notch, unreal. And uh, it was a good, a great fundraising day for us. And Graham Stapleberg deserves a shout out because I know that Mark and Graham—that's how we got in there. That's how Surfed got in there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Graham, yeah. sorry to leave you out. Yeah, no, no worries. I know Graham well. Um, so. That leaves us with where we are going into twenty, the second half of twenty nineteen and into twenty twenty with Surfade International. As as many of the listeners know, Surfade International does these um, mother and child health initiatives in remote locations that that all of us are tied to through our experiences with surf travel. Most specifically, the Mentawai Islands, where it started, and I had an opportunity to go up into the villages with Dr. Dave Jenkins maybe 15 years ago when we were first starting this thing and um, go up and see the children's cemeteries and also see the successes that we were starting to have with with the malaria nets and so forth and so on. And now we've gotten into um, clean water and sanitation and um, increasing maternal, um, uh, you know, making it so that mothers don't die when they have kids i forget what, exactly what that's called that's but. right it's the mother and child program and, and in the uh, villages they have a thing called a possum do which is a community-based health center where once a month a, a midwife will come in and some nurses and they'll check on the welfare of the of the mother and child and remember in these small villages there's a lot of pressure on a, a mum to go back to work to work in the fields and 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 or, or do whatever commercial activity the family needs but through uh, research, we know that if they can get an extra couple of months of breastfeeding or taking care of their child, they've got a happy, healthy baby. And if they don't, then there's um, huge, huge um, risk to stunting and um, malnutrition and poor health that the child can never catch up on. And there's there's terrible examples of um, which much hurt parents immensely is of the one baby who was um, has stunted and is and is a weak and, and a sickly child. And then through our programs, they've had a second baby, and the difference is huge. Like you've got a three-year-old that's that's bigger sometimes than the five-year-old, and is a big, fat, juicy, healthy baby that everyone wants, and and his immunity system is up, and things like that. And so they're those little tiny things that that you're playing catch up for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's good stuff that we do with SurfAid and um, and as you mentioned, you know, the first five years of this mother-child relationship are super crucial, and we're we're excited here. Um, you know, again, Indonesia is pretty far away from California relative to say Australia, which is just yes. a few hours. Um, so it's always been a, a little more difficult of a, of a, of a, of a opposition for myself or others to kind of convince people and talk to them about what we do in Indonesia. And in fact, only if you've been to the Mentawise do you maybe have your heart pulled on the string a little bit. And luckily now here with SurfAid USA, we have um, two new projects in Baja, California, which we're super excited about. One is Reyes de Fondo, which is, I believe, a food. Maybe can you speak to that a little better than I can? Yeah, it's a food bank. It's to do a lot to do with um, food security, which is a mentor program as well. The, the thing is, uh, what I didn't realize until recently is the littlest gap in someone who lives in immense poverty to lift up to a reasonable standard of life is such a little amount of money. If they can grow enough food to, to feed themselves and maybe sell a bit at the local farm or, 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 or markets, it's immense. And we're talking a dollar a month. Yeah. make a massive massive difference and and the same ideology in in mexico is there's uh, food security issues and sanitation issues that are really easy to cure if we can go in there and and help them and remember we're all about hand up not hand out so we want the communities to be actively involved in helping themselves and the same with mexico where we can look at those programs and indonesia's my mexico and mexico's your indonesia so I understand the synergies there. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and um, you know, speaking of that hand up rather than a hand out, the idea is that, that we, we teach the communities, and not only do we teach them, you know, this, this new way of doing things, but we also teach them to teach the next generation so that we can move on to the next village and help there. Now, the other uh, program that we have in Baja is in the Los Cabos region, and it's... Um, basically helping kids that don't have access to health care. That's right. It's, uh, it's once again to um, use limited resources. It's still early days on, on the program. And in fact, I'm going tomorrow down to visit. To, so um, I'll be more of an expert you know, in, a, in a week's time. Yeah. But it's the same ideologies of what we currently work in Indonesia and transplanted to Mexico. Cool. Well, look, I mean, if, if you're living here, if you're listening in, in North America and you, You've been hesitant to to uh, be a donor to SurfAid International. We would urge you to take a look at the website. The great thing about this nonprofit, you guys, is that it is um, completely transparent. I mean, all of our financials are on our website. And, of course, when you're giving to nonprofits, that's the first thing you want to do is take a peek at really what's going on here. Am, am I giving um, and is my money going to, to the cause that I think I'm giving to? And we have great transparency. Yeah, exactly right. And and my early involvement with um, SurfAid was in the Surfing World office and Coastwatch office. We donated um, desks and office space and phone use. So we wanted SurfAid, all of the money raised, to go directly to the programs and not get used in administration. So where I, I slowly immersed myself in SurfAid culture and now I'm, I'm working with SurfAid was we we're working side by side. So we would help them financially with with office space and that but also editorially with images and photos and and then um it was something that i wanted to pursue myself personally because 
There's so much need in the world and you can't choose. There's so many things that do need. But as surfers, I wanted to I wanted to find a charity that was my choice of charity. And and so what I, I would implore all surfers to do is surf aid is run by surfers, has surfers needs in at heart. We want to make a better place where we go surfing and, and we're connected through these great surfing locations. And we would like all of you guys to make Surf Aid your charity of choice as run by surfers and to help surfers. Perfect. Well, thanks, Doug. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, Surf Aid? Uh, there probably is, but we'll probably know that by tomorrow. But <laughs> we'll go, damn, why didn't I say that? Yeah. But can I just say that, um, like with yesterday, the big difference between where I was in media and in businesses to now the mindset and the psychology of it is is immensely different. And I had never worked in an NGO before. And people want you to do well. There's just this, you feel like your comrades working together for a common goal. And I've never met so many good people. And it's made me feel so good about humanity and surfers. And all of you guys should be proud of the people who do work with Surf Aid and do that because they're really, really good people. And, and, and there isn't that commercial drive. We, we only want money to give it away. And, and make make the world a better place and make a difference. And and the people are the real deal. The people who work with Surf Aid are, are, are great people, and I love being there. Cool. Well, thanks, Doug. SurfAid.org is where you can go check it out. And, again, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you very much. There is a train. That used to be so real 